Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, Undying Light listeners. I am your host, Pastor Alex, and it is Friday, which means another new episode for you. Uh, this is, again, the journey through the Gospel of Matthew. If you have not tuned into any sort of episode yet, I would encourage you to go back a few weeks and listen to the introductory episode on Matthew, and then... We have a couple episodes in the first few chapters, and then last week we had episode on Matthew chapter 3. Today we're going to look at 4. And I made a couple comments in the introductory episode how you know the parallel between the Gospels sometimes will rearrange uh, sometimes the events. For instance, with the temptation of Jesus here in uh, the desert or the wilderness, uh, Luke writes it a little differently. He writes the events in a different order. And so if you're curious about that sort of parallelism, the harmony between the Gospels, I encourage you to join us for our Sunday night Bible study. And you can watch on Zoom as we unpack those difficult t- contexts, those difficult passages to see why does Matthew record it this way and Luke does it that way or why does Luke uh, offer a different genealogy or why does his go backwards starting with Joseph and goes to Adam, whereas Matthew starts with Abraham and moves through time to Joseph? Things that we deal with and handle on that in that Bible study, and we make it very simple for you, just like this show. We, we take the, the complexities and we try to simplify it so that anybody at any level of in their walk at any portion in their life they can pick it up and listen and and understand and so that is uh, an encouragement for you to join us on patreon because that is a a perk that you get every sunday night at 7 p.m we have a bible study that's available via zoom and if you can't make it then we also have those recordings available that are some uh, then sent out to you as a patron dollar a month or ten dollars and some change for a whole year you get you 12 
months of uninterrupted access. Come join us and uh, help support this show. We are listener-based, so all uh, proceeds go to supporting the show and keeping us going forward, and uh, so it would be much appreciated. That's the patron scoop. Uh, let's get into the context of the show. Um, we are going to be looking at Chapter 4, and I'm kind of tossing the idea around because this weekend uh, I have All Saints Sunday coming up, and so today's actually Halloween or Reformation Day for all of you, uh, all you reformers out there. So, if that's the case, then this Sunday means it's All Saints Sunday, uh, whereas yesterday was Reformation Sunday. And All Saints Sunday has the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes more in particular, as their gospel in the lectionary. And so, I will be preparing a sermon on that more or less for next week or for, you know for the next Sunday which then interestingly enough follows uh, would be next Friday's episode on the Beatitudes. Now, I think what we'll end up doing when we get to chapter 5 is looking at the first 12 verses and then uh, in one whole episode and then we'll look at maybe uh, 13 through 20 uh, the salt and light and Christ came to fulfill the law. That's those are pretty hefty uh, chunks there, and then we can look at anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and love your enemies to close out the following. So we may spend three weeks in the fifth chapter of Matthew, and that's not going to be unheard of because uh, there's going to be a lot of these now that Jesus is going to undertake his teaching ministry, and we will have uh, a lot of content, a lot of context to unpack and work through. So we will... Uh, probably spend a few episodes per chapter uh, as we kind of start to divide that. Uh, but the first four chapters we can work through the context essentially pretty quick. Um, but we do want to take our time and we do want to be diligent and good stewards of the text because it is uh, you know, provided to us to handle in the right manner, especially being a pastor myself. It is our task to handle the text in a right manner and to explain the text so that people can understand it. But more importantly, it's for us to ensure that they understand and are reminded of the gospel. So we are in Matthew chapter 4. And like I said, if you are interested in understanding the harmony between Matthew and Luke, you can join us on Patreon and you can come and join us Sunday nights for the Bible study. We uh, have a few weeks left to go before we get to this point, but we are... Um, next week going to visit the announcement of the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter one. So we are still very, 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 very early in that study. We've only got a couple sessions down and if you want to catch up, you can off, uh, you could do that through the YouTube links that are on Patreon. So just a neat perk on top of all that, you'll get early episode releases and sermon notes and everything else that I'm doing for school and or any other writing projects that I will undertake once I'm done with school. So Matthew chapter four, the temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and, sat and sent him on, sat him on the pinnacle 
of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and only serve him. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. All right, so that is the first 11 verses, and we'll pick up here uh, these next two sections as um, we can you know, work through the, the initial context. So uh, Matthew 4 really is an immediate pickup from uh, the end of uh, chapter 3. It is immediately upon the baptism, the spirit that has descended as a dove is now leading Jesus into the wilderness so that he is tempted. The Holy Spirit, whom Jesus received at his baptism uh, at once, leads him to be tested. This wilderness uh, is a place associated with demons. Uh, this is kind of a Jewish historical perspective, if you would. We will pick up on this a little bit more when we get to chapter 12. God also led Israel into the wilderness to wander for 40 years, if we remember back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Interestingly enough, it says to be tempted, right? Um, He is led into the wilderness, a place where demons are, to be tempted by the devil. These temptations were not willed by the devil, but by God, whose eternal plan called for the Savior to be tempted and to triumph. Jesus met the test as Israel had not. Looking back to Exodus 15. As true, as true man, Jesus experiences genuine temptation. As true God, he overcame temptation. Uh, the devil in this context means slanderer. It can also mean tempter. Uh, and Satan in verse 10, which means adversary. So the enemy of God. Now, there's a lot that we can just really sit and unpack just in the first verse. There's just so much weight being placed here. Uh, you know, we've got this figure, if you would, in the New Testament now showing his face as the devil. Uh, in Jewish lore, uh, the wilderness was a place where these demons or devils had roamed. Uh, the name given to him in uh, a later portion by Jesus here in verse 10, where he says, be gone, Satan. He actually assigns to him uh, his name. Now, I also want to make sure that we we understand that framing. It's not that Jesus assigned him like he hadn't had a name before this moment. He had, but Jesus is now addressing him with his name, showing us who this tempter is. That's all it really amounts to, honestly. Back to verse 1 and understanding the parallels between Jesus being led into the wilderness And the Israelites being led in the wilderness for 40 years, as Moses writes in Deuteronomy. Uh, And those are very crucial to see because it shows us how when Israel was tested, they often failed across many platforms. But Jesus here is triumphant. Uh, These temptations that come as well, this is not something that the devil deals with. It is not his will. 
It is the will of God to test Christ and to ensure that he is triumphant. The true Savior will defeat all of the genuine temptations that he faces. He can, he will experience it as a true man and overcome them as true God. It's also interesting, too, to consider going back to Job chapter 1, where you have Satan roaming the earth, going to and fro, and God calls him into the throne room, and God gives him the authority to do certain things. So Satan has no authority outside of what God has given him. And funny enough, in some of these deliverance ministries or uh, some of these, you know, charismatic churches, they really are like uh, hype in the fact that Satan is just this evil, you know, spirit and he's deceiving people and he's doing all this malicious work. And, you know, we can get into whether, you know, the, the theology of whether Satan is bound or loose right now or any of that matter, but we're not going to. But it's always interesting to see the extremes in uh, a particular denomination's viewpoint of who Satan is and what his capabilities and limits are. Um, So, you know, somebody brought a question or video to me on Instagram, and this actually sparked this uh, new series we're going to look at next year. Um, So I got to keep reminding myself because I really want to do it. I think it's a fascinating study uh, for myself personally, and I hope for you as well as the listener. So once I finish ministry... Uh, finish seminary, I should say. Once I finish seminary, uh, hopefully next year, probably when we get back from our vacation, I will start doing the Tuesday episodes again. So maybe sometime around March. I might delay it until after Easter. I haven't really, I don't know. I don't know what that time frame in terms of busyness will look like. But the Tuesday episodes will come back and we will do a series on demonology. And we will look at early Jewish history. We will look at the world and what they see as evil spirits. And then we will consider, you know, demons through the New Testament. And then we will look at how the early church handled it. Why does the Roman Catholic Church actually have a demonologist position that you can go to school for and study demonology? Uh, Do exorcisms still happen? Can people still cast out demons today? Things like that. We have a whole plethora of context to go through. And I think it's helpful because we see these videos and this, this person had sent me a video uh, of another guy claiming to cast out a demon. And we were given some behavior from text, right, from the text and how demons operate and, and how they function. And we will obviously work through all that. But, um, you know, it, it, so we, we have to be very careful, right? Is this guy just putting on a show? Was he just, you know, tasked with appearing like he had a demon, you know, angry grunts and saying no and stuff like that? That's not, (laughs) in my opinion, anything to the extreme that is actually described in Scripture, considering the fact that some of the uh, demon-possessed people in Scripture uh, have some severe issues. So we'll talk all about that, I think, (laughs) later on. I, I think it's a fascinating topic, and I hope you guys will enjoy it. Um, but that won't be until probably spring or late winter, early spring next year. So, uh, we get to, uh, verse two now, uh, in fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now we should make note to, uh, in Matthew, we just get three temptations. Uh, the tempter comes in verse three and says to him, you are the son of God, command these stones to turn to bread, this hunger, uh, that Jesus experienced 40 days. I mean, I can barely go four hours 
uh, it makes it a, you know, very much a reality that Jesus was hungry. The humanity aspect, the true man of him was hungry. And in verse two, we have this, uh, you know, hungry being demonstrated. He was hungry. Uh, same thing with Israel when they were in the wilderness, they experienced hunger. And of course, what is the devil's first temptation is to attack a basic need. It is to go to him and say, well, Jesus, if you're hungry, then turn these stones to bread and eat. Ain't nobody going to know. Ain't nobody going to care. I'm sure God don't mind. You're hungry. You got to survive. That first basic need attacked hunger. Same thing that Israel had to deal with. In fact, they had a lot of people actually rebel and and in that time period, and, and God ended up bringing some judgment at various points. Kind of fascinating story to read about the Israelites. Um, but anywho, uh, Luke's account of the temptation records that he was tempted throughout those 40 days. And so we, we only have three recorded temptations, but Luke says that he was tempted throughout those 40 days and and he very well could have been Matthew just doesn't acknowledge it and it's not a not a you know make or break kind of understanding of truth if that is really the case because more than likely if we associate the wilderness to demons then Jesus probably was being tempted by demons easily overcoming them and then he gets to Satan and Satan uh, does exactly what he did in the garden and he challenges the word of God so the uh, acknowledgement right out of the gate too, in verse three, if you are the son of God, right there, you know we we get these um, we get these people who want to draw hate and uh, and balk at the idea that Jesus never claimed to be the son of God, and he does in many passages. He doesn't directly say I am the son of God, but he indirectly says those things and here we have this title given to him by somebody who knew him so satan is saying if you are the son of god then command these stones to become loaves of bread the devil tempts to get jesus to prove what the father had just declared just moments ago right so we are we're, we're 40 days in but we have the baptism which was just occurring in the scripture so of course the devil tries to uh, one-up god and he attacks the hunger that jesus has experienced because now it's about you know 40 days after the baptism and after uh, god has declared to the people there when john baptized him that this is my beloved son so to satisfy his hunger this command would be to change the stones to bread. This is what Satan goes after. He says, if you are the son of God, do this. Jesus is tempted to provide bread miraculously for his own needs, just as God had miraculously provided bread or manna for Israel. And notice, as we go through these temptations, they're all focused on the individual need of the person. It is the need to eat and sustain oneself. And Jesus is able to overcome that. And then Jesus counters. It is written. This is repeated by Jesus in verse 70 and verse 10. Here in verse 4, he is quoting Moses' explanation to Israel why God had led 
them, let them hunger in the wilderness. Life does not depend on food alone, but on the very word of God. Jesus does not exhibit his own glory by performing a miracle, but displays trust in the word of his father. And so we could say, look back to uh, the it is written text and go to Deuteronomy 8, 3, and you will see exactly what Moses had said there. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the very word that comes from the mouth of God. So after Jesus essentially overcomes the first temptation, the devil takes him up to uh, the pinnacle of the temple in the holy city in verse 5, and he is now giving him, if you are the son of God, again, right, the same title, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. So the devil seems to be in charge, but it is only a an illusion, essentially. Ultimately, it was the spirit that led Jesus into the desert, and he is now going to the temple in Jerusalem and being shown this next uh, temptation. And what it falls down to, literally is like falling down, is he's saying to jump off, throw yourself down. You're at the highest point in the temple, the highest point in the city, throw yourself off because God has written his angels will do what is commanded of them and they will not let your hands or your feet strike against the stone. And so uh, it just comes back to the same, you know, it comes back to this notion that Satan's trying to usurp Jesus. He's trying to one up him. And, and, and really the last temptation is just flat out hilarious. If you ask me, because now, uh, he, he will be soon overcome by Jesus again. And this middle temptation just feels kind of weak in itself. Yes. We have uh, Satan quoting from Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12, and he's quoting this to try and use scripture to, uh, throw to to throw off Jesus to maybe trick him into thinking this. So the devil sought to overthrow Jesus's previous use of scripture by quoting his own scripture using the Psalms, not the devil's scripture, but having his in his arsenal, if you would, in which God promises his uh, the command of his angels to protect those of whom he trusts. Though significantly, Satan omitted the phrase in all your ways. So Satan gives scripture and he tries to put that into his arsenal and it fails. It's almost like a bullet that backfires because he again, twists it and manipulates it and omits important pieces. So then Jesus goes on to say in verse seven, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God to the test. Uh, Jesus here is quoting from Deuteronomy six sixteen. And drawing that assertment from Moses' warning against Israel about testing God as they had done at Mesa, as back in Exodus 17. Jesus would have been guilty of the same sin had he felt necessary to prove God's power by jumping off the temple. And again, it's to gain personal glory and fame. That is the personal attack that Satan is going after. It is to go after one's desire for fame, wealth, personal glory, all that stuff. But yet what we get here is the son of God 
is not phased by these temptations. So it seems like uh, the devil's a little fed up with him here, and he goes to say in this third temptation uh, that if you just bow before me, if you fall down and worship me, then all of this, as he shows him the very high mountains and all the kingdoms of the world, he says all of this will be yours. Satan's offering Jesus here something that's not his. It is not Satan's to give. But what he's trying to get at is he's trying to get Jesus to bow before him and worship him. And I, you know, I think these three temptations, you, you know, you might, you, we, we can look at and reflect and be like, boy, these are really weak. We could certainly overcome those. Ha ha ha. But you don't overcome temptations on a daily basis because you are constantly falling into sin. And your temptations are probably a lot more basic than these are. Funny enough, that's just how we work as as human beings. We look at this and we say, well, if I was Jesus, I could easily overcome those. That's just dumb, right? But we don't overcome the most basic fundamental aspects of sin in our lives or the temptations that come to us. So Jesus says, uh, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and only serve him. Quoting Deuteronomy 6.13, again, Jesus turns to Moses to quote, The begone uh, begone Satan, Jesus has had enough from Satan and orders him to leave. This demonstrates the true extent of Jesus' authority as it will manifest later in 7.29. Jesus' third quotation of scripture was from a passage where similar words, Moses administered, uh, admolished, Israel to fear and serve the Lord rather than the idols as they entered the promised land. If Jesus had worshiped the devil and rejected the way of the cross, he might have gained earthly glory for himself. So the devil leaves him. Satan was forced to depart. The son of God has vanquished the old foe. And then angels come to uh, minister to him. Jesus had refused to relieve his hunger by a miracle as back in verse four was now miraculously the angels served him, probably bringing food with him. So kind of an interesting wrap up to the temptation of the desert. Again, the, there, there's a lot of depth to these three temptations. And, and I see a lot of uh, commentaries that go out and they try to explain and really kind of come up with some logical, philosophical explanation to these temptations. Why did Satan do that? What is he targeting? What sort of emotions is he trying to elicit and all that kind of stuff? And the more I read scripture, the more like, well, the text really just says this. Why can't we just take it at its word? Why do we have to come up with some sort of deeper meaning? It's pretty deep in of itself. We don't need to come up with anything deeper. All right. Now it's on to verse 12. Uh, Jesus begins his ministry. Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, quoting Isaiah 9. The land of Zebulun and in the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in the darkness have seen a great light. And from those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death and on them light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, so uh, we can probably spend a considerable amount of time here on these couple of verses. 
it it's a lot to take on, especially that last one. But we'll see what we can do in our time frame here. Uh, verse 12, uh, we have John the Baptist has been arrested. Herod, uh, Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, is now the ruler of Galilee. He imprisons John for condemning his adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. And we will see this uh, unfold in chapter 14 with the death of John. So Jesus means he departs. Here uh, it's a Greek word that is used. Uh, English translation is withdrew. Could be departed as well. Uh, with no idea of escape. As John's public ministry ends, Jesus's now begins. Uh, so he goes to Capernaum. And he's going to start his ministry there. Uh, we got this quote from uh, Isaiah here to signify the importance of that. Again, another fulfillment of prophecy. But let's go down to verse 17. And let's look here really quick. Beginning to preach. Uh, the repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This marks a major transition in Matthew announcing the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. Uh, this is going back to where John in chapter three is quoting repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus captures that and now is proclaiming that when John spoke these identical words back in three, verse two, the church proclaims the same message even today. Now, there's some things to understand in context and we should understand kind of maybe the timeline that unfolds here. Jesus is beginning his ministry. He's going to about three years of ministry. And then when he is crucified and then rises from the grave and then he meets his disciples at the end of Matthew, he gives them this command to go into the world and baptize people making disciples. So the command for baptism comes after the resurrection. And so the importance of baptism comes post-resurrection because Paul equates the baptism that we face as being uh, submerged into a death like Christ to be raised into a life, a resurrection like his. And it's also signifying that it is Christ washing over his church. Now that he is uh, risen from the grave, he is over the church. So baptism isn't instituted in this verse, in verse 17. What we have, though, is the traditional proclaiming of repent, turn from your sins, the kingdom of God is at hand. I am here, I am the Messiah, I have come to preach it. That is what Jesus is saying. So when we understand the right context, it's easier for us to place these types of verses in our eyesight and say, oh, okay, this is, you know, something we talked about last week with John the Baptist. This is what Jesus is meaning here. He's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is waking up Jerusalem. He's waking up Israel. He's going around banging on those doors, commanding people to be alert. Now, interestingly enough, when we get into some of his other teachings, Jesus will just flat out heal people, for instance. And before he heals those people, he will declare to them the forgiveness of their sins. He doesn't command them to repent first, but he freely and firstly forgives them of their sin. Fascinating understanding of how Jesus' ministry will unfold. 
Uh, so now let's get into verse 18. Let's try to work through the last handful of stuff here. Jesus calls his first disciples while walking by the Sea of Galilee. Remember, uh, he has departed and is, was around Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting nuts into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going to the and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them immediately. They left the boat and their father followed him, uh, left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus' ministry to the great ministers to great crowds. He goes all about throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread through all of Syria and it brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics and healed them. The great crowds followed him from Galilee to Decapolis and from Jerusalem to Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So that concludes chapter four, but let's look at these last handful of verses as we start to uh, wrap up what Jesus is doing here. So we know he's in Galilee. He's walking along the sea here, and he sees these two brothers who we now will know as Peter and Andrew, his brother, and they're on their boat fishing because that's what they did. They were fishermen, and that's, interestingly enough, a good portion of what the disciples are is they're fishers, fishermen, I should say. So Jesus says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Having no idea what that meant in that in that particular time frame, we'll we'll see it later. They respond at once at the overwhelming authority of the call of Jesus. Their priorities would never be the same again. So immediately, this is the interesting thought here Jesus is using. When Jesus calls, we immediately answer, follow him. We we have a response, whether it's uh, a response in faith or a response in rejection. There is always something to come by that. So the brothers seeing this man walking along the sea, that's, he has not, uh, really begun his ministry yet because we don't see these great crowds starting to amass him until verse 23, but they are overwhelmed by his authority to, to, to tell them to do this. And so they leave and they follow him. Uh, and the same thing with James and John, they both leave their father Zebedee in the boat and follow Jesus. So now we have four disciples uh, who are following Jesus that Jesus has personally called. Then verse 23 goes around and heals all these afflictions. Matthew and Luke emphasize that in the early in his ministry, Jesus healed everyone who came to him. Uh, this is indicated in chapter 8, 9, 12, Luke 4, and Luke 6. Mark writes many in chapter 3. Thus, the Gospels set out general characters of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. The, they later note uh, exceptions to those general trends, growing skepticism, as Matthew indicates in chapter 12 and Luke does in 11, chapter 11. Uh, the few miracles in Nazareth in chapter 13 and Mark 6 Healings are emphasized less and less as Jesus journeys toward the cross. The miracles adorned Jesus' ministry to demonstrate that he was God's servant, as John indicates in chapter 3 and Acts 2. 
They are not a witness that God will work wonders for all people everywhere at all times, as Paul learns in 2 Corinthians. So Jesus goes about healing people, and, and if you read the Gospels, especially in the Harmony, you'll see the emphasis placed on the healing early in his ministry. He goes around healing and teaching. We're not really told ex- exactly what he's teaching, but more than likely in this framework, if he's going into the synagogues, he is going in, he's pulling out scripture, and he's teaching that scripture. And he might even be doing this in personal homes too. So it's not just the synagogues that were reserved for this. It could have been high, you know, high-ranking officials or it could have been people who had some sort of influence that would have been able to call Jesus to them so that way they could hear his teaching. So he goes about uh, preaching and teaching, and we've got him in the synagogues now. And We'll see how uh, one instance later on in his ministry will lead him to anger the Pharisees because he declares a part of a text that he preaches to be fulfilled because he's standing there. So also, uh, we see how this is the initial thing. He, the, the, the premise to his early ministry here is to go about teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. That is the first priority. Then he goes about and heals all of the diseases and afflictions. Now, we can argue order of sequence and order of importance in this, but it really comes down to the same line. Jesus is out teaching and healing as his early ministry unfolds. And again, as he gets closer and closer to the cross, the healings and miracles will start to dissipate over time. Uh, So we've got um, these great crowds that are emphasized, and it will occur actually over 50 times in Matthew, the quote-unquote crowd, Uh, They follow him physically throughout all of the land, but not necessarily as disciples. They just were intrigued by his ability to heal. Uh, The Decapolis refers to 10 cities east of Jordan with the large Gentile populations. And beyond the Jordan is the East Bank, to which reference is made in Isaiah's prophecy. So Isaiah describes the sinful state of the world, people walking in darkness and in the shadow of death, unable to find their, find their way and lacking the ability to help themselves. Into this black hole comes Jesus, the light of the world. This light shines first in Galilee, where he calls his disciples, teaches and preaches and heals. His great light continues to shine in our darkness. The good news of Jesus of God's reign continues to be sounded in word and sacrament. To the sinful, hurting people, Jesus gives life, hope, and deliverance. So that is the end of the episode. That is the end of chapter 4. And we, again, could, we can spend so much time unpacking these verses, and we can do full sermons just on, you know, what does it mean to be called as a disciple why is the response immediately? And in fact, in like in my Bible here on Logos, uh, both of those immediately are underlined and in verse 20 and verse 22. So we have 3,410 people have highlighted that word and 3,167 have highlighted the other word. And interestingly enough, if there's a, a large chunk of people who have highlighted uh, a passage over and over again, it will show up on your screen as a recommended text to highlight 
Uh, going back to verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 3,600 people highlighted that. And so it's always fascinating to see that uh, where people place their importance. In fact, if you go to verse 19, the fishers of men, we have 3,059 people highlighting that. So wonderful, wonderful, wonderful stuff to see where people are placing their their thoughts and their minds and their their love and compassion into. So that is the episode, ladies and gentlemen, as I mentioned. Thanks for tuning in. Get to church on Sunday and pray that you are going to receive the sacraments. I pray that you receive the sacraments because it's the first Sunday in November. And as I record this episode, it'll be like I don't know, second or third by the time you hear it uh, or later on in the world. I don't know. Anyways, get to church on Sunday, partake in the sacraments, and be reminded that Jesus Christ forgives you of your sins. Until next week, ladies and gentlemen, have a great weekend. God bless. We'll see you all later. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.